When you ask people specifically a list of factors, very good, very reliable broadband actually comes as number one. And usually number two are the necessities like washer and dryer in the unit. This is episode 305 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. As we've covered advances in publicly owned municipal networks, we've learned that anecdotes about faster connections, better rates, and more reliable service are plentiful. On the other hand, collecting other types of data isn't always so easy. That's where this week's guest comes in. Michael Render from RVA Market Research and Consulting makes it his business to study the details of before and after data of public and private networks. RVA allows us to see the trends, improvements, and opinions through data analysis. Christopher caught up with Michael at the Broadband Community Summit in Austin, Texas, where the two talked about the work of RVA and some of the interesting discoveries they've encountered through their research. Learn more about their work at rvallc.com. Now here's Christopher with Michael Render. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, normally in Minneapolis, today in Austin, Texas at the Broadband Community Summit, sitting across from Michael Render. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Michael is the founder of RVA LLC, which is a, a research organization that if you're familiar with Broadband Communities Magazine, you've seen his research. If you've seen a lot of work from the Fiber Broadband Association previously, the Fiber to the Home Council, you've seen his research. Um, just tell us a little bit about what you specialize in, in terms of research. Well, we've uh, been in the business since 1990 doing various kinds of market research. But in 2002, we got involved with the then Fiber to the Home Council doing work on broadband and, and specifically fiber optics, starting at the point when we could find maybe 5,000 homes in the U.S. With, with broadband, with fiber. If you remember, I just have to plug this for a second, um, 2002, I'm going to guess Chelan, um, so a couple of, a couple of uh, <laughs> yeah. communities in uh, Washington State, right. uh, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Right, right. Uh, where else? Was Bristol, Virginia started at that point? Bristol, Virginia, I think, was on the list. There was a, a little community um, uh, north of D.C. I can't remember some of the names, but yes, we had probably 30 communities. And, of course, we counted uh, housing additions at that point that had, had some fiber, so... <laughs> And it was funny. We uh, one of one of the people I saw at this conference kids me that I used to call him up and he'd say, "Yes, we added a customer this month," and I'd say, "Well, that's great. I'll add it to the list." So <laughs> yeah, that's a, a point, a, like a fraction of a percentage point increase, but you could see it. Yeah, at that point, you it made a difference. It actually moved the needle. So. Right. Um, and so I interrupted you when you were just discussing, but you got into this 2002. So we started doing work um, for the Fiber, uh, the Home Council, and now the Fiber Broadband Association. And I've worked for them ever since, doing market research, keeping track of the deployments, uh, the official numbers of how many homes are passed and connected with fiber in North America. Probably 12 years ago, we started doing some consumer research as well for them in terms of uh, a, a large study of about 2,500 people using all kinds of broadband, comparing their experience, their satisfaction, the differences it makes to their, their lifestyle, and so forth. So that's that's been the predominant part of our work. Then we've also done work for some communities and for some vendors and so forth. Is this just a niche for you, or are you particularly interested in broadband? 
we, we do a lot of different kinds of very diverse work, and I enjoy work that's very technical on one side, and we do some consumer work as well that's not. But um, I've always looked for niches where I feel like we might make a difference because it's a it's a technology, for example, that I believe in, and I, I and I immediately saw fiber as such an opportunity that I, I would enjoy being involved with, and certainly have enjoyed it for for sixteen or seventeen years now. Sure. I'm just curious. I'm sure you have a lot of um, memories over the years of how the numbers have changed. Um, it, it strikes me that, that if you think back to the data, the big change is Verizon Fios. Right. The biggest, the biggest um, first change was back in 2004 when um, Verizon started to, to build, and uh, that quickly changed the numbers. Bef- prior to that time, we had made a prediction that fiber would grow into the, I don't remember what the number was, 1.5 million or something within so many years, and no one believed that prediction. But fortunately, Verizon uh, helped helped our forecasting come come to pass, and they they certainly passed a number of homes between 2004 and 2008, and that really started to, to push the industry forward. The work that you've done that I've referenced the most times, and it's, it's a little bit out of date now, was from, I believe in 2009, you did a study that included uh, municipal networks that had several years of operation and their take rates. And the take rate at that time was, I believe, 54% on average for uh, the municipal fiber of the home networks that had been in operation for you know long enough to get a sense of their, uh, they were out of the startup phase. Right. You, you recall that, or am I the only one that, because I read it I, I eight do, times. I do, I uh, do. Yes. Um, of course, we're agnostic to the kind of uh, provider. And feel that all kind, all types of providers have, have had an impact, but uh, municipal providers had a particularly large impact prior to the Verizon build, for example, because they were the first large builds of the time. You know, mm-hmm. large at that time was 10 or 15 or 20,000 homes passed. But Right. It wasn't just like a, a housing, a private housing development right, of right. a few hundred homes or a thousand homes. So it actually helped prove in the technology and I, th- I think led the led the uh, the industry forward and and helped you know prove things for for Verizon and other private providers to go forward. Prior to that it was some small independent telcos and some municipals and very very small providers mm-hmm. but municipals played a role. Um, municipals have continued to play a role throughout the process at fairly small percentages as a, as a total percent but um, they obviously have played a role and have been quite successful as a rule. You know, there are obviously exceptions, but there are mm. exceptions in all categories. So, Right. Well, I, I like to note to people that that a lot of those networks uh, were built in areas where there was no cable operator or where the cable operator had, had folded and walked away. So they were incumbents in, a, in effect, or they were the only provider. And so they were hitting take rates of 70, 80, 90%, right. whereas those that were in competitive areas were right. succeeding with 30%. So that's how we ended up with 54%. I think if you redid those numbers now, you and I would agree that um, it would be under that because many of the municipal networks now face much more competition. Sure. Municipal networks now, on average, uh, it, it depends on the situation. Municipal, as you mentioned, municipal networks that are that are larger, particularly in very competitive areas, uh, might be hitting the thirty-five percent after say five years. Those in semi-rural areas, um, maybe in the high forties sometimes or for, mid forties, I'd say. And then you know, there's there's some categories that have been tougher. The the um, in the states that have had 
mandated wholesale operation because of various factors take longer to reach their take rates and they've mm-hmm. typically struggled to hit about 30% after 5 years and then and then grew continue to grow from there. Right, and I think that um that one of the responses we're seeing that is cities are looking at more incremental models for open access now to try and to deal with those challenges and and I'm very enthusiastic about those responses. Right. Uh, but I'd like to move to just ignoring the owner and talk about fiber to the home satisfaction rates. Right. Um some of the research that you've done that that fascinates me is um, in particular, the response of people who are living in apartments to the technology. Because I think most of us assume people think broadband's broadband and they don't much care what they got. They just, you know, they'd like to pay less and they'd like a little bit more. But your research suggests that there's a lot of people who are paying close attention to what's available to them. Right. They really do. Uh, you know, if you just look at why people switch, they tend to switch more for reasons like cost or speed, which they have at least a reference point from from the provider of what they might expect. But we find that when people actually have a technology particularly, they are particularly interested in reliability first, then speed. And, and it's not just download speed, it's up, upload as well. So uh, there is a, a much greater satisfaction with fiber deployment than DSL or cable modem. And, and people do then spread that by word of mouth. So if I was to be antagonistic to you, sure. <laughs> it's totally contrary to my expectations that people would be aware of their upload speeds. There's, I think a lot of us that are very technical think people just don't understand it and don't get it, but right. you don't, you're not seeing that in your numbers. The thing that people understand the most is reliability. They understand when, they're, when their system's down, they need right. to do some work, <laughs> uh, their kids need to do some work, whatever, and their system's down. So actually, when we do surveys, reliability is the number one thing. And fiber actually does have higher reliability. We know that because of less electronics and so forth. But we also see it on our survey numbers. We ask people how many times they have to reboot their modems, how many times they have to call customer service. And it's about half the number of times that they do with DSL or cable modem, for example. So that's number one. Number two is speed. And people are starting to get the idea of upload speed because people are dealing with uploading large amounts of pictures, family pictures and videos mm-hmm. and so forth. So it's starting to sink into people that that is important. Latency has been the last one that people get, but younger people in particular are starting to understand that, particularly because of gaming and and other things. So. Right, and I think we're going to see that it be a much bigger a much bigger deal. And in some ways, I'm often a I think people might see me as a 5G skeptic. I'm quite excited about 5G. I'm trying to be realistic about it. But as latency really improves on mobile networks, uh, which is going to take many years. I hope that will be reflected in the cable networks and, and certainly, you know, the fiber networks already have really good latency. Right. I just, I want to note this and I'm curious, I'm curious if you have any great stories when you're collecting this data. I don't know if you have like a ability for people to submit stories, but your your note about reliability struck a chord with me. We were doing an interview with a woman in Ammon, Idaho, who uh, her family is one of the, the test folks on the network and they had been on the cable network and they were very dissatisfied. And in part because um, every Saturday morning, their kids would come running into their room while they were still sleeping and say, the internet's out, you know, you need to reset the modem or whatever. And so they have to get out of bed and, and go do that. And 
the the week after they switched on the uh, as a beta customer for the M and Fiber network, they're sort of laying in bed on a Saturday morning and nobody had bothered them. <laughs> for them, that was like there was sort of like the sense of like what, what's going on, and it was because right. the network stays up for more than a few hours at right, a time. Right, right, right. You know, I think many people have stories. Whoever is the IT more expert in a household mm-hmm. tends to get calls, uh, frantic calls from from home saying, you know, I'm in the middle of this project and all of a sudden my, my internet's out. What do I do now? Right. And, uh, so, uh, so people definitely notice those kinds of things. So when you're looking at people that are choosing a, an apartment or a place to live, and let's, let's focus on apartments first because I think you survey those separately. Um, I would think people looking for an apartment, they're looking at costs, they're looking at maybe transit routes for younger folks today. Right. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of priorities from people? When you ask people specifically a list of factors, very good, very reliable broadband actually comes as number one. And usually number two are, are the necessities like washer and dryer in the unit. <laughs> Um, so people do definitely realize that they need it for, for their living. Now, sometimes, and I tell people this, that our marketing communities, it's more invisible than, than granite countertops, for example. So sometimes when people walk into a, to a new apartment, they're not thinking about that right off the bat. So it's incumbent upon the owner or manager of a, of a property to put that more in the face of the prospective buyer with, with, with the demonstrations or literature or whatever. But when people do think about it, that, that, that is extremely important to them. And we've seen that go up and up. And, and some things like cable television, for example, have gone down over the last few years as we've surveyed. What do you see for people who are buying homes then, single-family homes? The same kind of list. We, we have some different amenities we ask about with homes versus uh, condos and apartments, but um, fiber is generally one or two in that list as well, and uh, so it's very important. We do see one difference between apartment renters and home uh, uh, buyers. People that are renting an apartment have a shorter time length they're li- looking at, so they're, when we ask questions about would they actually pay more for an apartment with high-quality fiber, for example, or high-quality internet, uh, people give a figure on average, which works out to be about eight percent on a rental basis. Okay, they pay eight percent more. Eight percent more right. to to get that to get that uh, higher quality bandwidth on a home or or a condominium, a owner uh, owned unit, MDU unit. People pay about three percent more, and we hypothesize the difference is that people think there's some cap because. Eventually, they might get that service, so they're, mm-hmm. they're only going to go up a certain amount. But they still are willing to pay more. We've seen that in our surveys year after year. The Fiber Broadband Association also did a study based on assessments. They, they hired a firm to look at uh, actual assessments of properties, and they saw that almost exactly the same difference in, in property values. So. Wow. Moving to uh, an area that I know you've just studied, uh, 5G. Um, Next Century Cities uh, asked you uh, to do a study of a of, uh, number of cities. I, what was the sample size? Uh, we, we ended up with 176 um, responses, I believe. And they tended to be higher tech cities due to right. the nature of who responded. Um, but I'm just curious if you, off the top of your head, any findings that you found uh, particularly interesting. And let me note that people should definitely look at the Next Century Cities website to to get a, a full link to a presentation that you did and, and more details about, sure. about that study. Well, we found that 
the the cities we studied were quite interested in in 5G, which uh, we actually defined it in the survey as small cells because you know it might start out with 4 4G densification, just denser use of current technology, and gradually migrate to actual 5G technology. But they're also interested in that and smart city technologies, and and, and these are technology-focused communities, as you mentioned. So they're they're they tend to be fiber-oriented and and 5G-oriented. Um, at the same time, they have some concerns. They they voice the opinion that they want to maintain some level of control um, of the process. Concerned about some some potential laws being passed. And particularly, they want to control things like the aesthetics of poles and so forth. Mm-hmm. They acknowledge at the same time concerns of providers about the length. Some of them mentioned that they, they have complaints from providers about length of time for permitting. And some of them acknowledge that that's an area that they could work on. But mm-hmm. but they uh, there's definitely a, a, a concern about this early stage of the process, trying to do it, in their opinion, right at this stage. So let me ask you a, a, a totally open question. Having done this for more than 15 years now, do you remember being surprised at, at how some of these things shifted over time? Was there a, a year when you were thinking, wow, that's, that's really different. Things are changing suddenly. Well, you know, I, I don't know that I can think of anything that's changed dramatically from one year to the next, but things do shift over time. And we've also continually found new ways to try to measure what's important to people. And, uh, you know, just this year when we were looking at MDUs, for example, we were looking at... Uh, those are multiple dwelling units uh, or right. apartment buildings for people not in the uh, in the hip industry. Right, right. Sorry, sorry. In that field, we were looking at how many times people, how much people work from home, for example. And got to thinking, what, I wonder if that correlates with the commute time, if there's any relationship. And sure enough, we found that the longer someone's commute time is, the more likely they are to work from home. So there's actually a, a pretty good mitigation of at least 30% of that commute time. And in fact, in people that say they can work from home, in other words, they don't have to be at a physical location to do their work, it's actually closer to 50% mitigation of that commute time. So that has several inferences. One, it it makes life more pleasant for the for the occupants. Number two, it probably broadens the potential market range for an MDU, for for a for a property owner to be able to market to. And number three, it has obvious implications in terms of traffic congestion and and pollution output and so forth. So. So are there, are there any other areas of your research that we haven't covered? I mean, I've, I think we've hit the areas that I, I come across the most often. Uh, but is there anything else that you think people who are following this sort of stuff might be interested in? Well, I think just going back to the point that people are starting to realize that the broadband experience is more than just a single number. It's just it's more than just the download speed number. Right. I think of it as uh, cameras. At a certain point, people thought megapixel, megapixel, megapixel. Right. Now they understand that there are multiple factors to right. consider. And not all people understand that yet, but I think people are, are starting to get uh, smarter about that. The, the current byword is, is gigabit internet. Well, mm-hmm. gigabit refers to the download speed in most cases. I, I strongly resist that yeah. <laughs> myself, but right. I agree. We've lo- I've lost that battle. <laughs> right. But you, you look at, is gigabit 
internet the same, and we found that gigabit internet, quote gigabit internet, delivered from fiber providers is much different than gigabit internet delivered by HFC, hybrid fiber coax from a cable provider, for example. And would you attribute that entirely to the fact that the the cable provider has a slower upload speed, much slower, or are there other technical differences that also come into play? The biggest differences we can measure through that question about reboots, number of reboots, and and calls to the service center is reliability. And Mm -hmm. and that's probably what makes people most emotional. But secondly, is the upload speed is a factor as well. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. Have you ever studied anything in terms of people's preferences for the provider? As you know, I'm a strong advocate for municipal networks. And and I would argue that a person um, like me would notice a difference between um, Chattanooga or Verizon Fios. But I'm, I'm going to guess that most people don't even notice that or even probably even aren't even aware of, of who their provider um, is. But have you looked at anything along those lines? You, you know, I think the brand or, or the type of provider does make some difference, and it depends on somebody's preference and also depends on past experience. For example, I was talking to a gentleman from Frontier recently at the show who agreed that that this was not unusual that they acknowledged they had a big problem in the changeover in in purchasing a Verizon files and sure. frontier files and we've noticed and they have noticed that satisfaction is not as good even though it's a fiber product mm-hmm. now that whenever someone has a a legacy that they've built in terms of people's expectations it takes a while to get over that so Different versions of fiber, for example, mm-hmm. can have different connotations. People particularly like Google Fiber, fiber for example. They, they, <laughs> they, you know, they haven't they have, have an expectation and a, and haven't had the negative experiences perhaps from the past. So they they're particularly fond of that. It is a more fun name to say than right, most right. other ones. Uh, right. I, I've always I think I'd probably love the the Cruise IO fiber Cruzio fiber from Santa Cruz just because I, I love their name. Yeah. Um, but I, with with Frontier, I mean, I, I'm curious if if what you're saying is to some extent they um, are now delivering at a reliability comparable to what Verizon had achieved, but because they had several months or a year or however long it was where they had increased outages, that right. sort of stuck with them. Is it-, it did, although um, the, the the representative said that that's quickly changing and they're they're moving mm-hmm. forward. And I would tend to agree that we've seen the numbers coming up, and and probably by next year they'll be back in in sync with the rest of the fiber providers. But but I guess that brings to the point. You have to have a good product, you have to market it well, and you also have to have good customer service to go along with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I always tell fiber providers, you've got a built-in advantage because you've got better reliability. You've got half as many people calling the call center, so you don't have to hire as many people, your expenses aren't as high. Do a great job on the human element as well. And people appreciate that. And, And to your point about local providers, sometimes local providers have an advantage of being able to serve customers with the call to somebody they know and people mm-hmm. that that actually when we've done regression analysis of take rates that is an advantage that local providers be it municipal or a small telco or whatever has sometimes over a, a larger provider where people feeling they're calling another state or another country for for service yeah. 
um, and the the fall event uh, for broadband communities where the economic development um, events happen uh, was in Atlanta last year and Mayor Fuller from Opelika, Alabama came and, and he's got a, a great Alabama drawl and, and he said that, you know, when something goes wrong on their network, which he would argue doesn't happen very often, you call someone and that person answers the phone speaking Alabaman. <laughs> and so right. you're not going to get someone who's going to speak, I don't, Mississippian, I guess. Right, right, right. So yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a, something that a number of small providers have noticed. Right, right. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for coming up and, and sharing this with us. Uh, I think this is going to be great for our audience to, to get a sense of what the numbers are. And I appreciate the legacy that you have from having done this for so long. Great. Well, thank you, Chris. That was Christopher with Michael Render from RVA Market Research and Consulting. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org along with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Husby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 305 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>